Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, Lord. It speaks uh, actively to our hearts, and we need to hear your voice. So, Father, speak to our hearts this morning, not just our minds, but our hearts, the very deepest places of who we are, because we need to hear your voice. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Maybe you've heard the old uh, Hans Christian Andersen story called uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. Maybe you've heard this before when you were growing up. It's about uh, two weavers who decided to uh, play a trick on the emperor, telling him that the wonderful new clothes that they had made for him were actually invisible. So as the story goes, the emperor parades through the streets naked, yet with pride, believing that his clothes were the most beautiful. And at the end of the story, finally a child in all of its innocence cries out and says, he isn't wearing any clothes at all. And the emperor is exposed for who he really is. There uh, have been times and there continue to be times in my life where I have felt like that emperor, where I felt like that I have been exposed for who I am, not just for myself, but for everyone else to see. Uh, growing up, I, uh, I was the good Christian kid. I was the kid that everybody wished that they had. I believed my own press, even in the process, thinking that, that God must be fond of me for being such a good kid and for all the wonderful things that I have done for Him, even as a kid. And then at one point, I remember it all ending. And at that moment, I was stripped of all of my own righteousness. I was exposed to everybody else for who I was, and maybe just as disruptive, or maybe even more disruptive, 
I realized who I really was for the very first time. See, in our passage this morning, Paul is stripping away the clothing and exposing to all of us who we really are. This passage can really be broken down into, into four different sections. And the first section, which is verse, verses 1 to 8, really deal with a lot of uh, objections that Paul's audience may have had. You see, the book of Romans is, is really a, a didactic and masterful book where Paul lays out the, the foundational doctrines of the gospel for the church in Rome, a church that most believe was full of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And when we study it now, we forget sometimes that it was just a letter, and it was probably read in just one sitting and passed around from all, between all the churches, the house churches in Rome. Now, because of that, nobody could really tweet Paul their questions as they were reading this uh, letter. Even if they did write him, a, 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 had a question, they would have to write him a letter and send it to it, and they would have to wait for months and maybe even years for Paul's response. So Paul, in this letter, anticipates any objections his audience may have. He anticipates questions and and he tries to answer them right off the bat. In these first verses, verses 1 to 8, he begins to answer the questions that probably specifically his Jewish audience would have had as they were reading this letter. They, after all, the Jews, would have, would have had the hardest time responding to the message of Jesus. They would have been asking questions like this. If the gospel were true at all, is there any advantage to being Jewish? Is there any advantage to the practice of circumcision? Is there any benefit to having grown up understanding and being taught the law of God? You see that question in verse 2. In verses 3 and 4, you see the question, is God being faithful to us by including everyone else in the world? Or verse 8, should we sin more so that God's grace can shine more? Should we do more evil so that good may come of it? And what Paul does is he answers all of these arguments here in a very brief way, but later in the letter he will answer them more fully. And the real point of this passage is what comes after these objections, and that is to, to really conclude Paul's first section of this book of Romans. In some way, it's a crescendo that builds to this point. If you think about it in, in, in lawyer or law terms, it is a case being brought to its final verdict in this section. And Paul's main point is to show us the demands of God and the results that come from it. The first thing we see is the demands, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world would be held accountable to God. Uh, many of you know that uh, I get the chance to teach a, a, a few uh, courses at a couple of universities that are close by, and I had something really interesting happen to me this week at one of my courses. I had a, I, it was a course on world religions, and I had a, a student come up to me kind of very sheepishly after class. I could tell he, 
he wanted to ask me a question, but but didn't know quite know how to do it, and he wasn't really even sure he was allowed to ask me this question. But but after a while, he finally got it out, and he said, and the, and the substance of his question was this: If you know all these things about all these religions, how do you choose? How do you personally? choose. I know that you're, that you're a Christian, you're a Presbyterian minister. How do you choose? How did you choose Christianity out of all these things? It was a big question. I had to pause and think about it before I gave an answer. I wanted to say something really profound at that moment, of course. I said to him at the end, I think what it is, is I think it's the uniqueness of Christianity that at the end of the day says to me that it is true. You see, I think that there are some similarities between Christianity and other faith traditions that are out there. Most religions at some point teach about ethics, they teach about morality, and they teach us about our obedience and our behavior. And in many ways, Christianity is no different. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave the Jewish people a wonderfully great gift. He gave them the law of God. And in it is articulated in words what was already written in the heart of humanity, at the deepest place of who we are and in our conscience. That law answered these questions. It answered the questions about what does God want from humanity? What must I do in order to receive blessing? How do I experience life in its fullness? Or maybe the most important question, how can I be accepted by God. There's even this incredibly powerful scene that I read about this week in in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And it's at this point in the Old Testament where God's people are about to enter into the promised land and, and Moses is about to pass away as he's carried them to the promised land. So in a very vivid way, what what Moses does is he divides the people in half, and he sends half of the nation up on Mount Gerizim and the other half on Mount Ebal. And he tells those on Mount Gerizim to shout all the blessings that come from obeying God's law. And he tells the other half of the nation to go on Mount Ebal and, and proclaim all the curses that come from disobeying God's law. And the point is very clear. Blessings come to those who obey, and curses come to those who disobey. And lest you think that that this is an only Old Testament sort of thing, the New Testament sheds an even greater light on the law of God for us. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, expands on the law of God. He begins to speak about the spirit of the law that stands behind the letter of the law. And perhaps one of the most frightening statements about the law comes in the the book of James, where the author says this, For whoever keeps the law but fails in just one point has become accountable for all of it. You see, this is where religions and other philosophies often stop or camp out. They tell you and I that we just need to try harder or to simply make sure that somehow our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds so that when the day of judgment comes, we can point to our good deeds. But Christianity alone says something different. 
it says that left to our own, we are doomed so that every mouth may be stopped. You see, there are, there are two responses to God's law that, that we can have, that you and I can have. We can, we can either deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we measure up. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we just need to try a little bit harder. But the other response is far more honest. The other response is that we can despair of our condition. In fact, this is why Jesus says, even in that Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who recognize the poverty of their spirit. Blessed are those who despair of their own goodness. You see, Paul in this passage is confronting all the ways we deceive ourselves. The way we believe that that somehow our goodness is just going to be good enough. But Paul isn't even done stripping us down. We see, uh, as the passage goes on, the results of these demands. We see it in verse 10 to 18, and on verse 20 that says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law, all of those commands that are there for us in the Scripture are intended to show us our sin. Martin Luther often called the law a tutor or a teacher that shows us the true nature of our hearts. It shows us that we can't fix our own condition, that if we look at ourselves honestly, we have to come to the conclusion, the realization that there is no way that we can make it on our own. There's no way for us to be made right or justified before God. And then Paul fires out probably one of the most intense passages in all of the scriptures. He quotes several psalms and sections of the book of Isaiah and tells us what our law-breaking has resulted in. He helps us to see the destructive and pervasive nature of our sin that infects every single part of us. Because Paul doesn't just speak to our behavior but he also talks about the character of our heart and our motives. He tells us that sin affects our understanding, and it even affects our good deeds. It even affects our goodness. An illustration that that I've used about this before goes like this. It says, imagine one night that I decide uh, in a very gracious way that I am going to do the dishes after dinner. So that after we're done eating, uh, I tell my wife and our family that uh, everybody just relax. I'm going to take care of everything. I'm going to do the dishes, right? And that's that's a really wonderful thing to do. But then just imagine me as I'm sitting there at the sink, uh, washing the dishes one after another and cleaning up the table. What is my heart doing even in that good deed? I can tell you what my mind is going to say. It's going to say, you know what, self? You've done a good job today. You are one good husband and you are one good dad. In fact, what I'll often do is I'll I'll look out the window at my neighbor's house and I'll sit and think, I bet he's not doing the the dishes 
for his family. He's probably making them do it. Or maybe I'll even think, maybe since I'm doing something so good for my family, maybe they'll appreciate me or a little bit more, or maybe they'll even do something in return for me. You see, even in my good deed of washing the dishes, my arrogance and my pride take center stage. Paul continues, he says that sin also is evident in our speech. And look at all the the mentions of the tongue here in this passage. Verse 13, he doesn't mince any words here. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Makes us think of Jesus' words when he said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That our mouths often reveal the character of our heart. But even our speech that comes out of our mouth is just the tip of the iceberg of what lies below the surface in our hearts. Paul then moves on really to the final piece of his argument. No amount of good behavior is enough. Having a good ethic will never save you. Knowing theology can't overcome the sin in your heart. Morality is inadequate to address the condition of your soul. The law shows us just how hopeless we are left to ourselves. And this is where the Christian story, the gospel, steps in and blows our mind. This is the thing that makes it so unique because it clearly tells us that we are helpless. It tells us that sin has so pervaded our hearts that we can't recover, that we only deserve cursing and not blessing. And this is why Jesus came. God came down from heaven. He came to remedy and rescue us from the curse of the law. The gospel tells us he came, he lived under the law, he subjected himself to the curse so that we could receive blessing. The gospel tells us on another mountain, on Mount Calvary, the curses of God fell on the only one who was righteous. He who knew no sin became sin for us. You might be wondering, why do we have to talk about sin here in this church? After all, a lot of churches have decided not to talk about sin anymore. It's not a good way to put butts in the seats. It's uh, not really a great way to encourage people when they come. It often is a downer. Why can't we just only talk about the good news? Well, the reality is the good news can only really be understood in light of the bad news. After all, a light shines brightest where? In the darkest of places. Imagine for a second that you're feeling just a little bit off. You're not feeling really great. Just feel off. Nothing major. You just feel off. You think, let's go to the doctor and And just go see what's going on. And you go to the doctor and he comes into the office. He says, yeah, you're sick. Just take this shot and you'll be good. You say, okay. You take the shot. You go out of the office and uh, you go on with your day. But then imagine that you're not feeling good and you go to the doctor. 
He runs you through a battery of tests, and then he throws up your uh, x-ray for you in his little office, and all you see is that it is full of black. All the blackness are tumors that are filling your lungs and your body, and the x-ray tells you that you should be dead as a result of what you see. Things look really bad, and then the doctor tells you, that you are healed. Imagine how much more intense your gratitude would be towards that doctor. You would feel that you owe that man or woman your very life. Friends, do you ever struggle like I do with feeling apathetic towards God? Do you ever struggle sometimes with with half-hearted emotions when it comes to your relationship with, Paul, with God. Well, then Paul would say this. Take a look at Romans 3. Take a look at the condition of your heart as it is apart from Christ. Take a look at how hopeless your situation would be without Christ. And when you do, you will find that the gospel is even sweeter and the grace of God even deeper than you ever imagined. Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician and a philosopher, said this. He said, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. What should our response be? What should our response be to this sort of news? Well, at first, it should be to let the law do its work in your heart. The law, at the end of the day, takes away all of our ability to shift blame and to defend ourselves. Allow it to expose the true condition of your heart. As disruptive as it is, allow it to undress you. You see, the law doesn't have the power to cure us, but it does have the power to expose us and to diagnose us. Open your eyes to your sin and just how hopeless your condition is. Let God painfully strip you of all the things that you may have built your life around that at the end of the day are inadequate. And in that moment, cry out for grace and mercy, and know that that's exactly why Christ came, to give grace and to give mercy. He came to provide the cure. He came to provide the remedy and the rescue. Matthew 2, verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that, friends, is good news. Let's pray.